0: All right, so we're going to start reading in verse 13 here. And uh, these, John chapter 13, uh, verses uh, 13, no, excuse me, 18 through 38. Um, And these are the words of God I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now. Before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to to ask him, ask Jesus, of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel and he gave it, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself disciples, if you love one another. And Simon, Peeper, Peeper. <laughs> <laughs> Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of God. Let's, let's pray. Father, we come before you and ask that you would speak to us. We thank you that you have given us the scriptures that you desire to make yourself known to us. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate this passage to us, that you would give us understanding, that you would teach us uh, how your word, of, your word of truth, Lord, can transform our lives and how it can transform the way that we treat one another, the way that we interact with people at school and the way that we interact with our family. Lord, I pray that your word would dwell richly within us, and that it would shape us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we are in uh, the second week of the series that we just started, uh, called the Farewell Discourse. Now, does anyone remember why it's called the Farewell Discourse? We talked about it last week. Any Any thoughts? his final hour yeah it's, it's his disciples. yep yeah so this uh to give you guys some context uh we talked about this last week this section of scripture from john 13 through 17 is a a series of events that john recorded that literally only was about five hours so he recorded this series of events that happened in one evening and uh, so this particular conversation that we just read and the one that we read last week all happened roughly about 12 hours before Jesus was crucified. And so that's kind of this, this reoccurring thing that I want us to be thinking about as we're reading these words. Because imagine, I want you guys to just imagine for a moment that... You're sitting at a Thanksgiving meal with good friends and your closest family members. And the thing is, is you know that at noon the next day you would be gone. What sort of things would you want to say to your friends and family? What sort of things would be on your mind? and that's what we are seeing here we are seeing the very heart of Jesus in this passage and in the the next passages and so that's what that's why this is such a precious passage to me because we very much so get to see the heart of Jesus like last week we talked about how he knows that not only does he know he's going to be betrayed, which we're going to talk a little bit more, but he knows that he is going to die and he's going to bear the sin of the world. And Jesus, with all of this in mind, gets up and shows his disciples how to, how to love one another, how to serve one another. And not only that, we talked about how uh, that act of foot washing was actually a parable of the gospel about how Jesus uh, left his rightful place as, as king of the universe and stepped down and clothed himself as a servant, not only to set an example for us, but also to be a substitute for us, to bear our sin and shame, to bear the punishment of God that we deserve so that we could be brought back to God so that we could be made right with God. And the the crazy thing is, is have you guys ever thought about the fact that Jesus didn't have to do that? He's God. He doesn't need us. In fact, in the Psalms, he says, if I I think it's in the Psalms, he says, if I needed something, I wouldn't ask you for it. I mean, he's God. He doesn't need us and yet he wants us. And yet he loves us. Though we are sinful, though we, uh, as Isaiah says, that we each have turned aside and, and gone our own ways, we've abandoned God, and yet Jesus seeks after us. That's the God that we serve. And so Jesus, knowing that his time was at hand, knowing that he was about to be crucified, for the sins of the world, that he was about to die to purchase a people for himself, he gives these, these few short words, these few short chapters to his disciples, mainly to ensure that they are taken care of after he goes back to be with the Father. And so in this this passage, there's actually four things that Jesus leaves the disciples with um, that, that we're going to talk about tonight. The first thing um, is that, it's pretty basic, but Jesus is God. The first thing that Jesus, ta- one of the first things in this passage, Jesus says, uh, Jesus is God. He says that you may believe that I am he. And we're going to talk about why that phrase is important. Um, But the second thing, in addition to Jesus is God, the second thing that Jesus relays to his disciples is that disciples of Jesus are united to Jesus. Disciples of Jesus are united to Jesus. And the third thing, and this is the important thing for us to remember with all of the craziness going on in the world right now, Jesus reigns over all things. Jesus reigns over all things and the the fourth thing is that disciples of Jesus will love like Jesus so let's let's get into it a little bit here um, so i 'm going to explain some context though here in this passage we see Jesus had just finished telling him in verse seventeen he says, "Blessed are you if you uh, if you, not only if you know these things, but also if you do them, referring to the example that he set of being willing to serve one another. In fact, because that foot washing was a parable of the gospel, what Jesus is saying is like, you should love each other so much that you'd be willing to die for one another. That's what he's saying. That's the extent to which he's saying we should love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, that you'd be willing to, to borrow from modern vernacular, you'd be willing to take a bullet for your brother or your sister in Christ. That is the type of love that Jesus is exhorting them to have, right? But once again, Jesus being God in this moment, he gives us this little glimpse here in verse 18. And he says, he says look with me, he says, I am not speaking of all of you, I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That is a direct quote from Psalm 41, 9. Now, the context in Psalm 41, David is the author of that psalm, and it's written during a time when he was betrayed by one of his closest friends. And John here says that not only was that a description of the situation that was happening in David's life, but God actually wrote that down for us in the Old Testament to predict the fact that Judas would betray Jesus. So literally hundreds of years before Jesus ever came to this earth, before Judas ever lived, God told us in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be betrayed by a close friend. Isn't that crazy? Like, it's amazing. Just for, for free, did you guys know that I forget exactly how many prophecies Jesus fulfilled from the Old Testament. It's in the hundreds. The odds of that like actually happening, him fulfilling that many prophecies are astronomical. Like there is literally no other explanation than that Jesus is God and that God is sovereign over history. But that's just for free. Um, <laughs> tell me we have to pay for <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, for three easy payments of twenty nine ninety five. dollars uh, <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, I can't believe that's going up on the website. Um <laughs> I can have Jennifer edit it later. Um, (laughs) So, but that's, it's crazy. So Jesus knows that he's about to be betrayed. And John says that this happened because God told us that it was gonna happen, that someone who was very close to Jesus was going to betray him. And then Jesus, in verse 19, he tells us exactly why he, he, he predicts it beforehand. He says, I am telling you this now before it takes place that when it does, that you may believe that I am he. Now, that phrase, I am he, he is not there in the original language. So that Greek phrase there is the Greek phrase ego eimi. Ego like the waffle, you know. Uh, ego eimi means I am. Okay. Now, do you guys know why that phrase is important? Anybody? Someone turn to Exodus chapter 3. Specifically, we're going to look at, look at verse 14. Actually, read. Uh, we'll read verses 13 through 14. Um, someone want to read it? Go for it. Okay. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, What is his name? Then, what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am, has sent me to you. Okay. So now, the reason that this is so important is because Jesus just used the exact same name that God revealed to Moses. He used the exact same name. In fact, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, In that passage, the same phrase that that is recorded here in John is the one that's used in the Greek version of the book of Exodus. Ego, I, I, me, or Imi, however you say it. Um, And so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, I am God. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your forefathers, Now, what's significant about this is that the name I am literally means that God in himself, that Jesus in himself, he's saying, I have, I am self-existent, meaning I, no one caused me, I just exist, And everything that exists in the universe exists because I exist and because I willed those things to exist. That is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that the God who was not created, who is unlike any other God who created all things simply with the word of his mouth, that God is the one who stands before you now? That God is the God who just washed your feet. That God is the one who's pleading with you to love one another. Isn't that amazing? That the God who created all things, who has literally uh, the who is self-existent, He is. That that God is the one who washed dirty feet. And so Jesus, he's pointing here, and he's saying, I'm telling you beforehand what's about to happen so that when it does happen, you'll realize that I am God. Now, there's some debate here whether or not, and this gets kind of into the technical uh, theological stuff, so I won't get into all of it. Um, There's some debate here whether or not this is actually um, divine foreknowledge on the part of on the part of Jesus, or if this is something that the Holy Spirit revealed to the human nature of Jesus, I lean the first way. Um, you guys uh, can study it yourselves, and then we can talk about it later. I lean the first way because, in fact, God says something very similar. In the book of Isaiah, when he's having this like this showdown with all these false gods and uh, well, not really. They're not real gods. He's kind of having this showdown with these people who worship false gods. And uh, he's like, you know, basically, not only can I tell you what's going to happen, but I can tell you why that thing happened. And so the point that he's making is that everything that happens in your life, in this world, all happens because God decreed that it would happen. So Jesus' foreknowledge of future events is based on the fact that it was foreordained. Does that make sense? So think about it this way. Uh, Imagine that you're an author, and you wrote a book, and uh, as you're reading through it, um, do you know the ending? If you, if you wrote the book, you know the ending, don't you? The psalmist speaks of life, speaks of reality as a book, and he says, he says that all of my days were written in your book before I lived one of them. And so the idea here is that history, reality, is like a story that God has written, and you and I are characters in that story. And so the reason that God knows the future is because he's the author. He wrote the story, and you and I are characters in his story. Now, that's what's called the doctrine of predestination. Um, some people don't like that topic because it can be a little bit it can be a little bit scary. Like, okay, if God has predestined everything, how how can I truly and freely choose, right? And the Bible doesn't really tell us exactly how those things line up or how they're parsed out. All the all that the Bible tells us is that the Bryce, you have the capacity to choose. You have the ability to make choices and the choices that you want to make, and every single part of your life has been predestined by God. It's kind of mind-blowing, huh? <laughs> you have freedom. You may choose. And it just so happens that whatever you choose is already written in your in the book before you lived out the days. Does that make sense? So the point that Jesus is making here is he's saying, I am God, I am God, and I'm telling you that something's happening beforehand, because when, <laughs> when it does happen, then you'll be like, oh my gosh, he knew what was going to happen. He's God. That's the point that he's making here. And this is relevant for your life, because if, this, if the last year and a half has taught us anything, it's that... It feels like the world's out of control. It feels like things are just going crazy and we have no control over hardly anything. And the reason that this is relevant is because even when life feels like it's absolutely out of control, it is never out of God's control. Everything is proceeding according to the storyline that he has written from before the foundation of the world. Our God reigns. And he is sovereign. And not only that, but he has promised that his sovereignty works in your life in such a way that every single thing that happens to you, whether good or what meet, we might say bad, will turn out for your good. Romans eight twenty eight. If you don't have it memorized, you should. Uh, because it says, let me see here. What does it say? All things work together for good for those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. And then it goes on. See, so it just takes me a minute. I got to you know, jog the old, the old brain. Um, <laughs> but you guys really should have that verse memorized because when you go through tough times, you need to know that what's happening in your life, God is still in control. That God still loves you, that he's still working, that he's using the good and the bad to make you more like Jesus. That's the promise. In fact, I would encourage you when you go home tonight, read Romans 8, 28 through, I mean, actually you should read all all of Romans 8. It's wonderful. Um, But I need to move on. Um, Point number two is that disciples of Jesus are united to Jesus. Look with me at verse 20. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. Now, this is crazy, okay? So Jesus is saying that when you receive another believer into your home, Christ lives inside that believer, He indwells that believer by the Holy Spirit. So receiving another believer in your home or treating another believer in a way that is right and that they deserve to be treated is like you're treating Jesus that way. And that's how we have to look at one another. We have to look at one another as people who are not only made in the image of God, but we are indwelt, like Rich was saying this morning, by the triune God. We are indwelt by God. Isn't that crazy? Think about as you're talking and having conversations with Noah, uh, you know, I'm sitting there talking to him, I'm like, Jesus lives inside that dude. That's crazy. Now the reason, and there's several reasons why this would be important for your life, but... Another, another example of where this is talked about in Scripture is in Acts chapter 9. How many of you guys know that the Apostle Paul wasn't always a Christian? You guys know that? Okay, cool. Uh, how many of you guys... I know you know. <laughs> how many of you guys know what he did before he was a Christian? Zach, tell us. He actually persecuted Christians. Yeah, yeah. Persecuted, had them... In fact, he was actually in Acts chapter 9, he was on his way to to go persecute Christians and Jesus showed up after you know yeah, anyway, Jesus shows up and he says, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" Why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, "Why are you persecuting the church?" He doesn't say, Why are you persecuting uh, those Christians? He says, Why are you persecuting me? Jesus is so invested in you, so united to you. You are one with Christ because of your faith in him. He's so invested in you that when someone persecutes you, it's like they're persecuting Jesus. Does that make sense? Another way to think about that is like, for instance, Tyler and his wife Rachel, they got married, right? They have kids. And in the, I assume, I don't know if they read this at your wedding, but they read it at a lot of weddings. The passage where it says, uh, and the two shall become one flesh, right? Yeah? Okay, cool. Uh, that is the picture. Jesus is saying that at the moment of salvation, you and he are one. So the reason that that's important for your life is because as you're going through things, and especially as we just talked about this, this heavy doctrine of predestination, it can be really easy for you to think that, well, God's just the, he's the author of everything, but he doesn't really care, right? I'm just a, I'm just a nobody. He doesn't really care. Jesus is united to you. He cares. He loves you. He's invested in you. What you are feeling, He cares about. Does that make sense to you guys? In Hebrews, it says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So we don't have a God who's so disconnected from us that when we go through something that's difficult, that he doesn't care. He cares. And he's with us in the midst of it. So that's the second thing. Now, third thing, look with me at verse 31. When when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So there's a lot of glorifying happening right there. Um, but let me, let me give you guys a, a little bit of a pointer to uh, what's, what's being talked about in that passage. Look at, someone look up Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Specifically, we're going to read verses 13 and 14. I know you're probably already there, but we'll let someone else get a chance to read. (laughs) You got it, McKenna? Okay, go for it. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay. Did you guys notice in verse 13 it says, one like a son of man? The reason that's important is because Jesus is taking a title. He's referencing this passage in the Old Testament in Daniel, and he's saying this thing, this this instance where... uh this son of man comes up to God, the father and God, the father grants him authority over literally all of creation. Okay. That instance that we just read about Jesus saying that dude, that's me. That's me. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying that after After his death and resurrection, his ascension to glory, which is what his ascension to the Father, which we talked about last week, that Daniel chapter 7 passage, that's what's being described here. And so now Jesus reigns post-resurrection and after his ascension. He now reigns literally right now over all of creation. And the, and the crazy thing is, is this actually has really deep roots in the Old Testament. Um, Adam and Eve, which we learned about last week from Sammy, thank you again. Um, <laughs> Adam and Eve, God originally gave them what's called the dominion mandate. He gave them what's called a dominion mandate. And in the dominion mandate, he says, you are my image. Go and subdue the earth and fill it, okay? Adam was a screw-up. He messed it up, didn't fulfill the mandate that God gave him, and all of us now, after, you know, <laughs> after Adam, we, we don't fulfill this mandate, right? And so Jesus comes along as the second man and the last Adam and fulfills the mandate that Adam failed to fulfill, he is the one who will go forth and have authority and spread the glory of God all across the world. And the whole point of this is that the Father would receive glory and the Son would receive glory and the Spirit would receive glory. And so the whole picture that's being, that's being displayed in this passage is the triune God accomplishing redemption, accomplishing uh, a, a, a world brought back to the Father. And Jesus is saying, I now have authority over the whole world. And this is actually very closely related to Matthew 28. And in Matthew 28, we have the famous missionary verses where he says, Go, therefore, and disciple the nations. But right before that, in verse 18, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and disciple the nations. So Jesus is telling them, he's saying that after I... I have glorified my Father here on the earth by my obedience and by my, now soon by my sacrificial death. And he will glorify me. God will glorify, the the Father will glorify the Son by raising him to life and giving him dominion over all of creation. Does that make sense to you guys? Now the reason that that is important for you guys is because how many times have you guys heard or thought it's my life I'm going to do what I want you ever thought that you ever heard that Jesus flatly contradicts that in this passage and he says no it's not your life it's mine like Rich was saying this morning in church y'all missed a good sermon if you weren't there this morning I was like I was Tearing up, I was like, man, this is good. Um, <laughs> now I've lost my train of thought. Dang it. Um, what was I talking about? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. Uh, he, he gave this quote from Abraham Kuyper. And basically the quote is, there's not one inch of creation that Jesus doesn't look at and say, mine. All of creation is his in heaven and on earth. And so now I, as a believer, have to begin to think about my life in that way. I can't, I can't say, what do I want to do with my life? I have to say, what does my heavenly father want to do with my life? What does my father want to do with my life? Now, it doesn't mean that you can't make plans. It doesn't mean that God doesn't give you Uh, dreams and desires that are god glorifying but think about it this way we we hold our plans with open hands does that make sense hold our plans with open hands and the last the last point uh, before we have ice cream surprise um, (laughs) is this disciples of jesus will love like jesus And this is found in verses 34 and 35. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. And so Jesus is saying the distinguishing mark for Madison, as a believer in Jesus, the distinguishing mark for me is how do we treat one another? That's how people will know that we're Christians. They're going to know that we're Christians if if Luke treats me right, right? And if I treat him right. If I treat him, if I love him the way that Jesus loves him. That's how people are going to know that I'm a Christian. And that's how they're going to know that you're a Christian. And that's relevant for you because people are hard to love. You know, they're really hard to love. Sometimes they're, they're just annoying, you know? And <laughs> the truth is, Jesus calls us to love people, all people, regardless of, you know, who they are, personality types, whatever. Jesus calls us to love and to serve. So in, in summary... We've talked about the fact that Jesus is God. Talked about the fact that disciples of Jesus are united to Jesus. Talked about the fact that Jesus reigns over all things. And we talked about the fact that disciples of Jesus love like Jesus. These are the things that were on Jesus' heart the night before he died. He was deeply concerned that his, that his followers, that his disciples, would know these things in his absence so that they would not lose heart. And we also need to know these things because it's super easy to get discouraged. Uh, let's pray.